And here we go. Um, uh, we are February 3rd, 2013, lecture discussion number 97 on the book of Romans. And yes, I'm going to play with a tie because I don't have my board up today and I don't have something to hold in my hand, the holy dry erase marker. And uh, this, as you know, is a uh, high religious holiday. It is Super Baal Raw Day. It's a mixture of Baal and Ra, the sun god where the priests ceremoniously contend over the pig-covered Baal while their vast congregates chant and flail about. It's clearly a pagan holiday. I mean, there's just no way about it. Yet. Just the pig itself, I think, is going to do it. And uh, fortunately, there's, uh, they haven't declared chicken to be unedible. Anyway, I have to de- I'm defeated by S- Super Baal Day. I'm no match for it, and I've decided to concede again. So I'm going to shorten this for those folks of you on the Internet, uh, and that enables those who have deep family traditions here in Anchorage to uh, flee quickly and see the first commercial. So if you were here, I'm going to go as fast as I can, and then Lindsay's going to go back and start the game just at 2.15, and uh, I'll be knocked off no matter what. So when you see her move, you can start applauding and run for the uh, buffet table. If you were here last week, And if you remember, I devoted considerable time to the relationship between Adam and Moses, because I I hope you can see that. Adam and Moses, and I added in a little David, and I'll do a little bit more of that in the coming weeks. But Adam and Moses shared a similar uh, tragedy, if you will. Both of them were confronted with a woman. In Moses' case, the woman is the nation of Israel. In Adam's case, the woman is, of course, the woman. But both of them were confronted. Confronted with a woman who is, in Moses' case, in deep sinful rebellion, threatening to kill him. In Adam's case, she is in sin and she is dying and she is giving him an opportunity to kill himself, if you will, that he reflected on for many, many uh, hours or days, in my view, and uh, I think I can make that case very simply. Um, noting that Adam's decision in regard to the woman bringing death through unbelief and rebellion clearly mirrors Numbers 20, Exodus 17 for Moses. They are essentially the same story when you see it in the context and in the uh, typological picture that they present. Ultimately, they are pictures of Christ. So you have to ask, okay, I see, um, if you want to call it this, Adam's tragedy, and I see Moses' tragedy, uh, and where is Christ's tragedy, if you will? How does he fulfill what they uh, are doing in portrait or in type? Uh, and many, of course, will say that it is at Gethsemane. And for those who have spent a lot of time now uh, comparing the the shepherd king David. See, I have obviously a shepherd king, David, who slays Goliath, this unbeatable beast of a man. I have Christ, shepherd king, who will slay the Antichrist, this unbeatable beast of a man. Clearly, those are intended for us to see David's uh, typological portrayal of Christ, his prophecy. So if you spend a lot of time comparing the shepherd king, David, to the shepherd king himself, Jesus Christ, you've already asked then, if if David weeps on Gethsemane, and he does, who does he weep for? He weeps for Absalom. He also weeps for Saul. And Christ weeps for Israel and the lost at, at Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Absalom is uh, David at uh, 2 Samuel 15, 30. And I want you to begin to notice these these events 
and these men's lives. Moses, Adam, and uh, now David. So what do you, what's the obvious thing you do next? You find out who, what other man is going through this kind of event in his life that portrays Gethsemane, if you will. Obviously, what's happened in Gethsemane is Christ is asking for the cup to be, to, to let the cup pass. And that, as you know, is a tremendous picture of what is going on in the eternal Godhead between uh, the justice of God and the mercy of God, both of them infinite and omnipotent power, and they are now having to have a solution. And Christ is saying he's in the role of the love, if you will, in the sense that he wants none to perish, and yet there must be a penalty for sin. So he is weeping for the lost, the ones that are not in the cup, if you will, if you want to think of it that way. And so here is... Again, this weeping that is going on, and, and so you want to compare that. And obviously, we want to expand our Adam and Moses comparison to include the Mount of Olives now, or Gethsemane. Christ has chosen the Mount of Olives to ascend and descend. That's where he ascends at the end of his earthly ministry, if you want to call it that, or his humiliation, or his first advent, or his first coming. And he descends there on the Mount of Olives for his second coming. So why did he pick that mountain? Why that spot? He could have any spot. That's the one he wants. So what happened there? Why is this spot so valuable and important to him? And uh, uh, and it's appropriate when you are talking about the ascension and the descension of Christ, um, you have to look at Proverbs 30, verse 4, which is the great question of Agar, and Genesis 28, 10 through 12, Jacob's ladder, right? Ascending and descending is Jacob's ladder. The, the great question of Agar is ascending and descending as well. So uh, that's happening. The ascending and descending is happening on the Mount of Olives in Gethsemane. And you have all of this now connecting going on, or what I like to call the transitive property and congruency. You're going to ask, what's the congruency or the equivalency between the Gethsemanes of Christ and David and the dilemmas of Adam and Moses? Because they're going to fit together. In other words, can I solve Christ at Gethsemane by accumulating the information provided by Adam with the falling, fallen, deceived Eve? And also adding in Moses with the rebellious Israel. And then David weeping for Absalom. Can I figure out what's going on? Is, is that what he's done? And that is, in my view, what he's done. He has told you that understanding Gethsemane Gethsemane of what Christ is doing with the cup is very difficult. So he gave you these little, um, if you will, small shadows of it so that you can find out what's happening there and, and begin to see what is happening at Gethsemane. Gethsemane is, of course, an extraordinary event that, uh, that the Godhead is demonstrating for us. But we do, as I said, get small little... Uh, no other word I can use, little portraits. And you can say, does my opinion of what's happening at Gethsemane fit Adam and his dilemma with Eve, Moses and his dilemma with Israel at Numbers 20, and David weeping for Absalom? And just in case you think this is going to be easy, now what comes next is i got to bring in somebody else. Who else do I have to bring in? I have to bring in Noah. Eventually I'll have to bring in Abraham. I'll have them all. And you can look at each one of them's event 
and say, that teaches me about what's going on in the Godhead or what's going on at Gethsemane with the cup. Just a matter of review. Let me restate Moses and Adam. Adam has attached to him Genesis 3.22. God said of Adam, Behold the man. How many men were there at the time? Just him. So you want to, you could say, Behold this man. Because there's nobody else. It's got to mean Adam. Behold the man has become... In other words, he is now transitioned. He wasn't always this way. He has become. Behold, the man has become like one of us. And the us is the Godhead. So I ask the question, which one has he become like? And where are we going to find that out? Because it has to, we have to have a place where Christ is, in a sense, fulfilling Adam when he is in the garden dealing with the death of Eve. Moses has Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like unto me. So now I have two likes. You'll be able to identify the Messiah because he's going to have in his, in his ministry events that you can tie to me. You can look at my little examples of them. So I have the like of Adam and I have the like of Moses. Now I have David, uh, Acts 13.22, 1 Samuel 13.14. God says this about David. I said it about uh, Adam. It, it is uh, said about Moses. And now it is said about David. I have found David a man, what? After my heart. David has a heart like God's heart. So where? Where in David's life is his heart like God's heart? You can rule out some. There are a lot of places where his heart's nowhere close to God's heart. But someplace, there's a place. And I've long submitted that it's best uh, to look at David's love for Saul and love for Absalom, two men who were devoted to doing what to him? Killing him as soon and as quickly and as horribly as they possibly could. And, and David did what? He mourned for them. He loved them so much. He mourned their death. He was unconsolable in both cases. How do you explain a man that loves his enemies like that? Do you do it? Don't answer. We don't do it. David did it. And he was weeping and mourning their physical death. And Christ wept for Israel and for Judas, mourning for their spiritual death. There's a difference. One is at a higher level than the other. Christ does not mourn physical death, does he? I have a cramp in my hand. Those of you want to know what's going wrong, it's not enough Kentucky Fried Chicken yet. M&M's fixes cramps. I'm going to prove that here in a minute. Diet Coke usually works for some reason. Just Christ wept for Israel and Judas, mourning for their spiritual death. And in a smaller way, Adam wept for Eve at the prospect of her spiritual death. Does that make sense? That's the answer, by the way, to the great question there. Who told you that you were naked? God asked that of Adam. So in other words, Adam uh, was contemplating something that is greatly serious there. Who told you that you were naked? We covered that last week. I'll get it again next week as well. Notice how I'm concluding, though, that Jesus wept for Judas. I think I can prove that. And that Adam wept for Eve. Two things that I believe I can prove. Uh, rather, rather conclusively and rather obviously. And I believe they're obvious. I see Genesis 3.12. 
Then the man said, God is talking to Adam, and, and Adam said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree. He asked, have you eaten? The woman gave it to me. Now, a lot of people may, or mistakenly, they make that so simple, and it is not. They mistakenly, most of the time, say, see, that proves that Adam is trying to pass blame. No, it's the absolute opposite of that. It's a very complex statement. The woman you gave to me, she gave it to me. He's telling God what? She gave it to me. Isn't that great? She did a good thing. That's evidenced, by the way, of confession, remorse, repentance. This woman gave me the poison. Yay. That's actually almost, he's, he's acting almost like a, a defense attorney. He's testifying of her heart. Now, he doesn't need to. God knows it. Who, who, why does he do it? Why do you even have a conversation with God that is out loud? He can read your mind, right? So, obviously, it is for the other people there, or the other persons there. Who's there besides Adam and Eve and God? Satan is there and the angelic realm is there. So this is being done aloud. And Adam is testifying to those that are watching and those that are listening. Eve gave me the poison and that's astonishing. Let's talk, talk about that. You know, he could not leave her alone or forsake her. We've talked about that before. We'll, again, next week. And, and he is entrusted with her safety. See, you just assume that she has to come back and give him the fruit. Why not make a run for it? Or the poison in this case. Fruit is a common way of explaining it. Why not make a run for it? She didn't. She decided that she had to come back. And I can prove that she was not with him. Again, I keep saying this. I did that last week as well. But I... Those of you who listen by the internet, that's, that's on that uh, previous lecture. But why not just walk away? What's her reasons for giving the poison to Adam? Or why did she give the poison to Adam? Adam is presenting it as if it's a good thing, and I believe that's the right way to look at it. How is it a good thing? Why not abandon Adam? Why, why return to Adam? And why hand over the poison to him? What's the point of all of that? What is that testifying of? What is being said by those actions, her actions? And by the way, just for fun, how many how many poisons are on the tree of poison? Do you think you got a whole tree full of poisons? How many? How many I got? How many poisons were there? Why did Eve bring it back to Adam? Let's just ask this question. How many poisons would... Uh, Put Satan one on the tree. So you can you can wrestle with that. And I don't want to get bogged down with that until next week. Anyway, I need to introduce now Noah to our little equation. Uh, oh, uh, Christ and Judas, really quick. John seventeen twelve. Listen to this. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, except the evil thing, because he calls Judas the evil thing, or uh, the son of perdition. Same thing. Christ says, those whom you gave me, I have kept. That's almost word for word what Adam said. The woman whom you gave me, I have kept. And she gave it to me. 
We're winning here. Just almost the exact opposite of everything you've ever heard about this story. Uh, um, and I want you to begin to question. It's, it's identical. Christ, in Genesis 3.12 to John 17.12, Christ weeps for Ju- Judas, Adam weeps for Eve. I would expect that. Adam is like one of us. And we'll get, we'll delve into that as we move along in this study. Now, for the, for the rest here, in my nine minutes that I've got left, Noah, I have to, I have a note right here. What time is it? It is six minutes after two, for those of you who want to know. Um, a few times, uh, a few things that must be compiled before we can begin any, any serious study of Adam in the garden uh, is is things that we have to know about Noah. Hopefully by now everyone is aware of the angelic host role in the narrative of Adam. The angelic host or angelic realm cannot be dismissed, should never be ignored. They're prominent. And most of the time it's done for their sake. We're on display for them. The whole purpose of some of this is for their sake. And now for our sake, because we read it after the fact, understanding their presence and how they respond to what's said and what's done by Adam and Eve and Satan and what God says and how they respond and, and, and what they do, how many committee meetings they have while all of this is going on. We gotta have a poison committee. We gotta have a behold committee. We gotta have a like one of us committee. We gotta have uh, an animal slain committee. We gotta have all the driving out committee. We gotta figure out what's going on here. All of this stuff. So train yourself to ask consistently, how are the angels responding to what has just happened here? There aren't any people witnessing this. It's just angels, Adam and Eve, and uh, of course you have the seraphim, cherubim as well. And I call them the angelic realm. So to understand uh, chapters 1 through 3 of Genesis, you've got to be saying all the time, what are the angels thinking? And what are they doing? Because they don't just think things, they do things. How many groups do I got? I got the one-third group and the two-thirds group. And they don't act the same. They don't respond the same. They each have their own plan. It's very important that. Okay, we should all notice that only two men in all of Scripture have God bring or deliver something to them. And those two are Adam and Noah. What does God bring and deliver to them? They're the only two. Hmm? No. Adam is sitting there and God brings a whole bunch of things to him. What's he bring? Animals. Noah's there. What does God do? Brings animals to them. They're the only two men that animals are delivered to. Obviously, uh, Adam and Noah now have this relationship that nobody else has. And so you've got to begin to say, I've been very interested over the years to see that Noah, you can't buy a book on Noah without seeing what all over the cover. The ark and what? All the little cartoon animals. You ever see a picture of Adam and all the animals? It's almost like it's completely neglected. Those two events in both of them are very important. Animals are connected to Noah. Animals are connected to Adam. And Adam is seldom remembered for the animals that God brought before him. And Adam was to name them. And that, by the way, everything he said, he said how? Aloud. For who? For the angelic realm, right? The angels were the one-third and the two-third are watching this guy name every animal, each and every one. And Noah was to place them in the ark. One's naming every one of them a different name, by the way. And the other is placing them into the ark. Just like we name our animals. 
By adding the two events together, we can begin to glean the actual meaning of all of this, especially when we know there's three arcs. I've got three arcs to deal with. By the way, the first one's called the Ark of the Covenant. We call it the Noadic Ark. It's the Ark of the Noadic Covenant. So I have Noah's Ark, I got Moses' Ark, and I have the Ark of the Testimony that is uh, holding the Ten Commandments inside in the transcript of Moses, the handwritten transcript. That'll be an extraordinary day. When that happens, that changes everything. When we find Moses' handwritten transcript and we find the other stuff that is in there, the jar of manna, most believe, are in there, and, of course, the budded uh, staff of Aaron. So when we find those things, it's going to be a, a real game changer. By the way, at the end of the age, there are no atheists. There are only people who believe in the Antichrist is God or who believe in Christ is God. That's the only two groups. We're back to that. There aren't any evolutionary monists. Or none of those guys are around. Everybody is one camp or the other. And something makes that happen. And finding the ark would have go a long way. Finding all three arcs would really go a long way because they are three parts to a whole, right? You need to know that Noah's ark was covered in atonement. It says so. You'll read the word as pitch, but it really means blood atonement. It can also mean pitch, but it actually means blood atonement, Genesis 6.14. That alone should tell you that Jesus Christ is portrayed by Noah's Ark, just as he's portrayed by Moses' Ark, just as he's portrayed by the Ark of the Testimony. But for today, animals being brought to Adam and Noah is of special significance. Animals are prominent. And obviously, both men had the responsibility of God's commandment. So they have animals in common being brought to them. They were also both told to be fruitful and multiply. And what's the purpose of that two-part order? That's a two-part order. What's the difference between be fruitful and what's the, and multiply? What's fruitful mean to God? And again, the multiplying aspect certainly got the attention of who? When man started to multiply, somebody got, got involved. Who? Genesis 6. The angelic realm. Satan and the one-third. They got involved. Powerful angels said, wow, we can take advantage of this multiplying stuff. What was their motive? They saw an advantage to the contamination of the multiplying, I'm sorry, they saw an advantage to contaminating the multiplying process. Another important detail to consider is that Noah was not contaminated, he's not poisoned at the time that he is put in the ark now. And most of his family was not, somebody was, as you know, I believe that was Ham's wife. Anyway, Adam also was not contaminated when Eve came to him. He was not poisoned yet, right? He goes, he's poisoned second. So I have both of them in a non-contaminated state dealing with a contaminated environment. But each had to deal, as I said, with the consequences of the contamination. As an aside, by the way, let's just talk about the animals. Which animals came to Noah? All of them? Or just the contaminated, uncontaminated ones? Do I have contaminated animals and uncontaminated animals? I have contaminated people and uncontaminated people. So, did he get all the animals? We just assume he got all the animals. Did he? Did he get the, uh, he get the fish? I need to get them. Cockroaches can live through anything. They were probably slipped on there. Anyway, did any, that's the question, did any usurpers find entry to the ark? Just questions to think about. But back to fruitful and multiply. Is there a distinction? What does fruitful mean to God? Why does he desire a great number of men and animals? And notice that again, that God wishes, he desires that there be great, uncountable, overwhelming numbers. He does it all the time. 
he says it's men are uncountable, animals are uncountable, the angels are uncountable for us. He just loves overwhelming numbers. His creation is beyond our comprehension. His universe is vast beyond our ability to even figure out how big it is. It's beyond explanation. And that is actually his point. These seemingly infinite numbers. See, they are infinite to who? Us. We call them infinite. There's nothing more ignorant than to say that the universe is is infinite. It is not infinite. This is infinite to us. So ask the obvious question. For example, I'll give you one. How many mice have there been since the beginning of time? I saw something in the paper the other day that that cats kill four billion birds a year. How many birds have there been? I mean, how many? How many people have there been? How many people are there now? Maybe we might be we might be over seven billion now, pushing towards eight billion. How many people have lived since Adam and Eve forward? Probably, I would guess. Henry Morris did a study. Probably about fifteen to twenty billion. How many sparrows? We found billions and billions of permineralized bones, fossils, testifying of the death of billions of animals but also testifying of their lives. They had lives. David asked this question, by the way, in Psalm 139, 17. Essentially, it's this. How many thoughts do you have, God? How many thoughts does God have? What's the total number? What is the sum of your thoughts, David said to God? That's the question of the size of God, which is a very important question. And that is where we are stopping. Somebody stop the recording and push the appropriate button. And musicians, you've got one minute to do a song. And the rest of you get in the ready position. And let's rise and sing four words and run for the buffet. <laughs>